This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. We had a pause in the music. It set me back there. We usually, Danielle usually sets a good lead in there. But welcome to the Real Estate Hour here on the Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 132. So for our regular listeners who are used to my saying and all the hosts saying Channel 111 or 111, we've now been moved to Channel 132. So uh, reset your dials, but it'll automatically set for quite a while. Anyway, I'm your host, Bob Lane. I've just finished 10 years as an adjunct professor of real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School. Uh, for, and for over 40 years, my day job has been a practicing commercial real estate lawyer. We're live at noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1 p.m. Eastern. As always, you can access past shows via our on-demand feature. I have two guests today in the studio with us. We're very honored to have uh, from the two senior members from the global accounting and consulting firm of PwC. They're Tim Bodner, U.S. real estate deals leader, and Byron Carlock, the real estate practice leader for the global practice at, uh, at PwC, formerly PricewaterhouseCoopers. We're going to discuss PwC's report on second quarter real estate transactions, mergers and acquisitions, their forecasts for the future, their analysis of the past, and any other uh, inside scoops we can uh, pry out of these two uh, senior and insiders in the in the real estate market. <laughs> so, welcome Tim and and Byron. Thank, Thank you, Bob. Great. Um, before we uh, we delve into some of these things. Maybe we could start. You can tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, how you got into this uh, this gig. Uh, Byron, uh, as a senior member, do you want to uh, start? Sure, sure. Right. So I'm Byron Carlock, and I lead the global real estate practice, uh, the U.S. practice uh, for PwC. I came to the firm from industry, having uh, worked uh, the first half of my career with the Trammell Crow family and a, a large real estate family in Dallas, Texas, where your friend Oscar Nakahara started as well. And then left to run, um, work in public REITs with Post Properties as chief investment officer, and then was president and CEO of uh, three REITs for the CNL company down in Orlando, restaurant real estate, um, hospitality and healthcare real estate, and then uh, lifestyle and leisure real estate. And so as a result, it's a um, a nice transition from the principal side to the service side as we watch this growing. Uh, asset management industry and its increased allocation to real estate. So I'm pleased to be at PwC now for six and a half years. Yeah, and you had quite a storied career uh, before getting into that, right? As the the CEO of uh, some major REITs, indeed, yes. Um, as uh, a major player in the Crow, the Crow family uh, and their real estate, the Trammell Crow. Uh, so you've seen it from all sides. I have indeed, and it's been a great career. Uh, Tim, why don't you uh, give us your story? Sure. Happy happy to do that. Um, <clears throat> so Tim Bodner, I lead our uh, real estate deals practice uh, for the firm, which is uh, part of the broader uh, PwC deals practice, which is a global uh, a business for us, uh, a very exciting one. Uh, at this point in time, I've been in professional services most of my entire career, 
uh, all in real estate. But I did take uh, a slight break from professional services and was part of the team that uh, started and founded uh, Invitation Homes, which is the largest owner of single-family properties. Uh, So it was there for... Uh, roughly from we had about 11,000 homes to 50,000 homes and was responsible for that period of time of leading the accounting and finance functions. Now, am I allowed to mention some of your representative clients? I guess this is on uh, it's public information, but uh, you know, you, you've had some of the most uh, high-profile uh, clients, the Blackstone Group, Starwood Capital, Graystar, Apollo, Brookfield. I mean, you've, you've really uh, are the uh, consultant to the stars. Is that... Uh, <laughs> We yeah, as a I mean, firm, we have a, have a, a firm, great but, client yeah, roster, yeah. yeah you know, well, you and Byron together probably uh, corner the market there. Um, so let's, uh, let, let's actually delve into some of the things that your, uh, your report. And one of, one of the things for our listeners, I mean, you should know about PwC, is that they're the publishers. They're celebrating their 40th uh, anniversary this year of emerging trends in real estate, which mm-hmm. is probably the, one of the uh, publications that the real estate industry looks into. And I think they co-published that with ULI. Indeed, yes. The Urban Land Institute, as well as the Real Estate uh, Quarterly Survey. And um, what I just saw when we invited you in here was the, is the PwC Deals, your uh, uh, real estate uh, deals insight publication, Tim, that I think you uh, spearheaded. And I know you got a lot of contribution from, from Byron and the others. Right. Um, and I was really surprised when I saw that when that came out. But for our listeners, it's a terrific uh, account of the first two quarters, uh, basically, of 2018. And, and, and the, the real estate and financial and capital worlds have been wondering, okay, how long can this boom last? I mean, this is, you know, any second, you know, we're going to fall off the precipice, but uh, we, as every cycle has, but there's no, no signs. So we would have expected deals to have fallen off transaction volume and, and, and uh, size. That's not what I read here. How do you account for that? Well, the big the big yeah. story is it's relatively flat. I mean, you think of people expected volume to be down substantially. It was only down about 1.7% in deal value and only 0.1% in deal volume, uh, still completing $176 billion of transactions Q2 year to date uh, through June 30, and then 11,820 different transactions. Uh, Tim has further breakdown, but that's that's showing that the real estate industry, from a transaction perspective, is still quite robust. And the composition of those transactions may be changing slightly. We'll be talking about M&A activity in a little while, but it's still quite a robust capital market for real estate. Tim? Yeah, I, I think what I would add is is two things. When you, when you look at um, one where... Um, leverage overall is and just the overall supply of capital. There's just a tremendous uh, amount of capital out there that needs to be deployed. And when you look at uh, how capital could be allocated, Byron mentioned this a little bit before about allocations, real estate returns are still uh, relatively good as opposed to the alternatives. So I think that's one thing you can still, capital still likes real estate. The other thing I would add is uh, operating fundamentals of the industry overall are still quite good when you look at rents and uh, margins. So I think those are two, you know, important factors as to why we're still seeing uh, activity in the real estate. Uh, I, I, I think that's really a astute obser- observation, and I, I'd like to drill down on, especially for some of our listeners who are, you know, less in the industry. Uh, we have a, a lot of, you know, very quite a wide spectrum of listeners on, on our program. 
Uh, so we talk about capital. We talk about deal volume of transactions. What, what are we really talking about? Are we, are we talking about individuals buying properties? Are we talking about REIT mergers? Are we talking about development, multifamily? I mean, that's a lot of questions I'm yeah, asking. Sure. Uh, let's asking, think but, about it in all the buckets. But let's Yeah, let's, yes, let's, let's break it down. So I think that, the – Byron, thanks. The public REIT market has been under siege from a valuation perspective. So many of the public REITs have been trading below their net asset value – calculations, which means that their share price looks to be less than their liquidation value on a property-by-property basis. So capital flows have changed in the REIT market while growing in the funds market, both closed-in funds, which have begun trailing off a bit, open-ended funds, which are growing substantially, and then new non-traded retail REITs that have been sponsored by some of the major sponsors. At the same time, foreign capital continuing to find what is perceived to be a safe haven in the U.S., domestic and international pension funds still looking for yield through real estate in the U.S., the growth of wealthy family offices and individuals seeking to find property in the U.S., and that's across the spectrum, small transactions to large. And then most recently, the proliferation of mergers and acquisitions, which have been big transactions that have really inflated the dollar value. No, I think that's right. If you look at where we are today, just if you just pick apart one thing Byron said around the REIT market, the number of uh, privatization transactions or public-to-public REIT mergers this year, there's been nine year to date, which is roughly double the amount of volume from last year. And in last just, year was a better year. It was a big year last year, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, you know, one one of the things that we're going to get into is uh, we're talking about the, sort of the, the flow of capital from foreign markets and, you know, something, you know, the three of us were talking about uh, outside the show is is the trends for the last 50 years of where money comes from and the whole flow of capital and how that drives transactions, you know, whether it's money chasing deals or deals hungry for, for credit or capital. Um, and uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that. But then um, we actually have a caller who's uh, going to hold on for a little bit about how PwC analyzes the real estate markets. And I think we really – I think that's going to dovetail well into sort of what your, your analysis of where money comes from. Sure. So um, what what – what, where would you say that money is coming from now? I mean, it's, is it all over across the Is it global? So let's start from a macro perspective yeah. and look at the global asset management industry. So the numbers associated with growing the global asset management industry, which is the savings of the investing public internationally, we're seeing compound average growth rates of – Five and a half to seven percent of gross asset base growing. And so we published a report not long ago called Asset Management 2025 that looks at the 120, excuse me, 145 trillion dollar asset management business um, globally. And a big percentage of that at the bottom, so you, you look at stocks, bonds, cash, and other alternatives, real estate and private equity are getting a big piece of the other alternatives, and that's growing. And so as you think about what used to be a 2 or 3% allocation to real estate, it's growing to be a 5 to 9% allocation to real estate. So it's as you watch the saving public globally, that's everything from the forced superannuation savings in countries like Australia and Mexico and Canada – you look at the growth of sovereign wealth funds, another 21 new sovereign wealth funds 
collectively investing with an allocation that includes those same categories, and real estate, of course, is a piece of them. You look at individuals seeking to move money to the U.S., and then you look at um, public pension funds. Those buckets, not to mention wealthy families and insurance companies too, all of those have growing savings amounts that need to be deployed, and real estate's getting its fair share of that. And, and I think you said $145 trillion? That's the estimate of the asset management industry by 2025. Per, per year? No, no, no. Oh, that's, no, no. That's, the gross, that's the gross value right. of the asset management industry as is currently tracked yeah. in our publication called Asset Management 2025. Ah. So, I mean, with all the news uh, yesterday about uh, Apple, you know, mm-hmm. who capitalized at a trillion, a, trillion. a mere trillion. When we're talking <laughs> a about trillion here, a trillion there, yeah. and it's a big industry, right? Yeah, eventually, talking about real money, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but uh, I think, you know, you were also, we we're also talking about, it rarely gets discussed at, at, at the Wharton School, or certainly in the real estate department, or real estate uh, uh, programs like the Zellori Center, or in this show, because we take it for granted, But but you said, you know, do people ever ask about the legitimacy of the real estate market and the and the uh, allocation of how much capital that there is to the real estate market? And I, I looked at you like, well, who would ever question that? It's never come up. I think it's a great question. Well, I think it is now a legitimate asset class on the spectrum of assets to which assets are allocated. So the allocation wheel, you know, of course, includes cash, stocks, and bonds. Then you've got hedge funds and ETFs and private equity, and real estate has an important seat at the table, and frankly, those allocations are growing. Now, there's a downside to that. When valuation falls, real estate is an illiquid asset class. You don't just call your broker and sell your property, right? Right. right. It it's happens. not like the stock market. Exactly. Yeah. And so that that fact cannot be forgotten, but the legitimacy of real estate as an institutional asset class continues to grow every year. Yeah, and and I I think that the world takes that for granted a little bit right now, but not that long ago. I mean, I th- I think before the Tax Reform Act of 1986 um, or of 87, um, ending the end of 86, private money was I mean it was was what was funding it, and it wasn't real estate industry wasn't sort of submitted to the capital markets until after that pretty much when uh, sure. REITs started to redevelop. Mm-hmm. Why is it redevelop? They were reborn. Again. Reborn yeah. is mm-hmm. a better word. Uh, let me just welcome any new listeners since the uh, top of the hour. You're listening to Business Radio, the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Bob Lane. I've just completed 10 years as an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School by night. And my day job is I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer. We're honored to have in the uh, studio with us Tim Bodner and Byron Corlock, both from the global accounting and consulting firm PwC. We're talking about the firm's report on second quarter real estate and many, many other um, aspects as our conversation is going far and wide. and We have just so much to talk about. Uh, But before we we come back to our conversation, uh, we've had a patient caller who I think is going to segue into some of the things we want to talk about. Tom Brown from Orlando, Florida. Tom, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. How can we help you? What's your question? Um, yeah, y'all are talking trillions up there. We're just trying to stay business here in Florida. <laughs> I can appreciate that, though. Um, as a, uh, in the re- my, my question is, I had heard somebody had worked in the Orlando market, and that's where I am. Specifically, as we try and gauge what's going on in the market, how long is this boom going to last? How can we see into the future? 
what statistics should we be looking at as far as kind of being able to guess what's going to happen, uh, you know, with if it tails down or it's going to take off, kind of as professionals, what y'all would do as far as government statistics, looking at different websites and things, uh, what would you monitor real closely to kind of get a bead on some type of predictability? That's my first question. Uh, well, Second, go ahead. Let's take them one at a time, Tom, and stay stay on the line, because I, I think a lot of the, the predictions for the future we're going to say for the second half uh, of the show, to be honest with you. We want to lay a lot of groundwork first, but I think your, your your major question is that groundwork, is sort of how does PwC, you know, what, what data do they look to, um, both for present uh, and for future? Perfect. Sure, and so the, the fundamental data analyzed for market strength and product strength remains occupancy and rental rate growth. And so when you consider the health of the industry right now, we have an industry that is in relatively healthy supply-demand balance. Mm -hmm. The changes going on in the retail subsector are the most dramatic, where that is really remaking itself in light of e-commerce, which is then causing tremendous growth in the industrial and warehousing space. Office uses are changing dramatically with shared space and shorter leases and cohabitation and, um, you know, the, the shared office environment is changing the way office is used. And then from a multifamily perspective, which is the, we call them the four major food groups, office, industrial, retail, multifamily. Yeah. Multifamily is still generally in most markets undersupplied, while nearly 29 million millennials still live at home. So there's pent-up demand waiting to be satisfied as well. And, and that's notwithstanding the, the, the anecdotal uh Perception, because in most major cities around the country, in fact, not even the major cities, the profusion and development of multifamily has just been enormous mm -hmm. in the last uh, several years. And everybody here in Philadelphia keeps saying, oh, my God, how are they going to fill all these buildings? And yet the statistics are that the, it's, the demand is there. The demand yeah. appears to be there, and we are still undersupplied by as much or six as, as six or seven million units nationally right now based on historical absorption standards. And it's because financing really slowed after the global financial crisis, and we never normalized back up to pre-crisis production. And so we have some pent-up demand. There are some, there's some overbuilding showing up in some markets, especially in the upper luxury and in the condo area. But rental apartments, especially affordable rental apartments, are in great short supply. Well, <clears throat> housing affordability is a very, very important, very important topic right now. And so I think when you look at certain sectors, like if you just look at manufactured housing as another example of, of this, very end of residential, that's one of the best performing sectors right now in the public space. When you yeah. look at where those businesses are trading relative to others, they're 18 to 20% above the value of their assets versus a lot of the other sectors, including multifamily, are 10% below. Yeah. So... Well, uh, you know, the, the, the sub-markets are always, you know, the, the key. So I think a lot of perception based on when you're talking about the, the, the upper scale, the luxury and condos as opposed to affordable housing and middle markets. Um, you know, in, in this area, for example, the, the ultra-high-end homes are not selling. The, in a certain range, they're selling like, like hotcakes. Hot sure. Yeah. So back to his question about yep. what are you looking at? You're looking at supply-demand characteristics. You're looking at market job growth tightness of employment and unemployment, and uh, really who is occupying whatever it is you're building, whether it's office, industrial, retail, or multifamily. And so as back to be, being responsive to his question, I hope those are generally healthy, 
Uh, you're in a market that is growing largely with service workers, and uh, they need places to live and shop as well. Orlando's a good industrial market, uh, and so and it's a good hospitality market, of course, as we know. So I think um, any weakness that you're seeing at the market level is probably um, maybe a minor adjustment as opposed to anything that predicts a big downturn, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, Tom, you stay stay with the show for the second half because we're going to get into uh, the prognostication and forecast in the second half. But you said you had a second uh, question. But before you tell us, I think I neglected to give out our number again. Uh, Please call us, listeners, if you want to join our conversation or you have a question at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour. Tom, what was your second question? The second question was, and I was I was being specific to the uh, kind of lower level housing market as it relates to development. But my second question is, if you want to build a housing unit, including the lot and the building itself, what kind of gross margin should we expect? Ah, it's a great question, <laughs> and I, I don't know if anybody has that answer. But uh, well, Tim, the, Byron, you want to? I'll let Tim run it? with it because he was in the large rental housing business. They bought them pretty inexpensively at the time in the global financial crisis. I will tell you, since then, costs have risen dramatically. Correct. Yeah. So steel, concrete, labor have all driven costs and depressed that margin. And the margin, right. of course, changes from market to market, while lot sales have continued to go up as well. So it's that margin's been compressed. Well, and you're seeing that. There continues to be a shortage of labor in the residential construction market. But if you look at the public real estate businesses that focus on single-family housing. So a lot of the large businesses that were founded by some of the private equity firms we mentioned earlier, their gross margins or operating margins are somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 60% in the, in the, in the rental space. Now, in the home building sector, for the reasons that Byron mentioned, you're going to see some variation from that for, for the reasons we talked about. So what, what, what are numbers? Can I, can I put you guys on the spot? Because I'm thinking that listeners like Tom, who are, I'm guessing that Tom's sort of a, as a developer perhaps uh, in, in Orlando, or if he's not, others are. Um, and well, how much profit should, is, 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 do I need to justify the risk of, of development, either buying and holding some a, a stabilized asset or an asset that needs some uh, you know added value or building from the ground up? You know, there's this investment risk and development risk and and you know what 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 are some some whether you know cap rates or or margins uh, I, I suspect Tom, that's what Tom's Tom's looking for I would be interested in sure that. I mean yeah. you think about to his question I mean ideally you'd like to think you could you know build at 200 square 200 a foot or less and you know sell for 250 or 350 a foot depending on the finish levels and the so location that's like a Twenty five percent, you know, from two hundred to two fifty, mm-hmm. right there's a twenty five percent of my arithmetic holds up, and to go even higher than that, you're really getting some some good margin. Runs, but yeah. you've got the risk of delivering on time on budget in a rising cost environment, and you've got the whole period necessarily to uh, hold it and carry it, the interest cost necessary to carry it from the time it's finished until the time it actually sells, and so. So there's risk there to the right. home builder that's doing it. When things go right, the margins are good, but that whole period can eat into that margin. 
And for, for our listeners, uh, you know, what we're really talking about is risk and reward, which permeates all investment um, and all actually all decisions people make in life, I think. But but uh, it, it might per- tell, tell me, uh, Tim and Byron, whether so my, my sense over a long time, but I'm not as, you know, deep in the industry like, like you are, is for a stabilized asset. I mean, it used to be that you could hope if you're going to buy an apartment building or an office building and it's, uh, you know, but you're not really uh, uh, doing, having development risk. You, you might want to have, it used to be like an 8% return and cap rates are going down, down. It may be like five, 6% mm-hmm. um, if, you're, if you're lucky. If you're going to, uh, if you're going to develop, you have development risk, you have capital risk, you've got uh, construction, you have all kinds of risks. I've done programs on all the different kinds of risks. You want 16, 17, 18, you know, up toward 15 to 20% typically. When, when we're uh, developing in China, you add to that sovereign risk, sovereign you know, risk. Is, is, is the government going to take your property or are they going to change the laws on you? Repatriation and, risk if you want to get your money out. Out. So, yes, yes. so the returns people were looking for were between 25 and 30 percent. So are those numbers still realistic? It's harder in the industry right now with the rising costs yeah. and the available capital for folks that will take less. And so you think about – I think about it in buckets. So there's core property returns where you've got stabilized assets, paying rent and distributing that rent out to the shareholders. Core, then core plus, a little riskier, then value add that might include some development, mm-hmm. and then opportunistic, which is a fix-it situation. And so you look at – and back to his question about Orlando real estate, you know, you think about the fix or flip HGTV show where people find a – a property that might have good bones but needs to be updated and can be flipped, those margins can be pretty good if you're taking something that's, you know, not as functional and then turning it into something that's functional and marketable. Those can be decent margins, but that's risk. So you think about the risk and return spectrum of core, core plus, value add, opportunistic. You can choose where you want to play on that risk return spectrum. I think that your question, Bob, Overall, the numbers you mentioned are still what we're seeing in those buckets that Byron mentioned. But I think what's really interesting is one of the things we're seeing is investors are really focused on reinvestment risk. And so what we're seeing is if you look at funds that are being uh, formed by new sponsors, there's in many cases a rotation from the legacy opportunistic-related funds or value-added funds towards longer-dated uh, fund sources like Core or Core Plus. And so we're seeing a number of large sponsors moving that, largely because investors are asking for it. And part of that is because it's harder to get, to Byron's point, the same level of returns that you were, were getting historically. While meanwhile, their allocations are growing. growing. Yeah. So if they've had money out in a fund that then liquidates and sends the money back, they've got the pressure of reinvesting yes, that plus the new allocation that's been given to them from their investor pool, right? Yeah. So what what you're really saying is, and, and this is for you know some simple minded guy like a radio host here, you know, uh, you know, is that we're, we're lawyer, we're, professor, radio host, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, it, well, is that we're really we're 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 adding to the risk reward concept of the yeah. return on, on on your risk that you want supply and demand, basic economic principles, so that if the supply of money greatly is 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 greater than the the, the use of it, the demand for it, the development, then the, the money, the capital, I, I'm guessing, and you can correct me uh, or, or comment on this, whether it's lenders for debt or whether it's investors for equity, uh, they, they're willing to accept less of a return because they got to do something with that money you were just talking about. True. 
although our, our lending environment has been reasonably conservative since the global financial That's crisis. Good. So the risk is being really taken by the equity investor that used to be able to get a lot more financing for each project. That financing has been squeezed. They put more of their money at risk, so they have to be very careful about where on that spectrum they want to play. That's right. Break. Tom, thank you for, for your questions, and uh, thank you for calling in. We're going to let you go. Um, we, were talking, uh, we were talking about you know, the capital markets and where money comes from, and uh, we were talking about you know, basic you know, risk-reward and what kind of returns on it and uh, you know, the supply and demand of money. And uh, During the, the, the break, Byron, you mentioned something about uh, the changing preferences, so it's not just a matter of need, but it's uh, some more subjective aspects. Sure. So 80% yeah. of our office inventory, as an example, was built in the 80s and before at a time when we watched the way people want to use their office space changing. So there's a great redevelopment opportunity that's happening across several of the asset classes to become more relevant to current needs. A few weeks ago, I toured my first four-story warehouse. You know, you wouldn't have thought about a warehouse being multi-story. They were back in the 20s, by the way. Warehouses were multi-story with the big caged elevators. Yeah. Well, this this yeah. is much more high-tech, where trucks and vans can back into the warehouse, and robots are loading cages and dropping them into the vehicles. And so you, you see how that type of warehouse product to meet the growing demand of e-commerce, requires new development and redevelopment. And technology is driving that because mm -hmm. we have the technology to do that. Indeed. Like, like so, car parking. So office yeah. is changing. Warehouses are changing. Retail, we know, is changing. The way we use bricks and mortar for retail, even though 90% of purchases are still bought in bricks and mortar stores, you watch the e-commerce growing you know, 15 to 20% a year in utilization, which is driving warehouse demand, changing retail demand. And then you look at residential, which is changing to higher density, smaller units, urbanized, with live-work-walk environments versus the Beaver Cleaver suburban house with right. the white picket fence. Although that's not dead, millennials are moving out now to the suburbs so they can educate their kids. But you see densification and urbanization driving demand of folks that are either selling their houses and moving in or millennials and Xers that have waited for their own family formation before they go out to buy the white picket fence suburban yeah, home. That, that, that's a tremendous observation. Um, and, and while I'm listening to you, I'm also putting together uh, an experience, actually an experience you and I, I know, have shared with uh, in China. Yes. So uh, when I was in China, and this is even 10, 12 years ago, uh, for many times on business, um, I was surprised to see that restaurants would be up on the 12th floor of an office building. Retail would be multi-floors. Uh, you'd have to go up. And, and we don't see that. We, you know, it's always ground floor restaurants, ground floor storefronts for retail uh, and uh, you know that kind of uh, restaurants. And uh, I guess it's the densification in some of those cities are so dense, so populous. And as we're, that's happening here, you know, millennials uh, are moving into and staying in the city. Baby boomers are moving back into the city, you know, after they've had their big suburban homes. So it stands to reason. Is that is that a... Uh, Absolutely. So I think the, the, the story from that, the lesson from that is changing preferences are driving needs for new demand, new product, new reasons to develop and redevelop, which I think, frankly, is elongating this cycle because our cities are becoming better. And I didn't even mention the technology driving city change for the smart cities, integration with rapid transit, changing the way we live, work, and walk in an urban district. That's also the result of new use preferences, just like this Penn District 
here. I mean, look at how what a great, vibrant community. I, I, I'm a Harvard guy, but I can't help but I, I can't <laughs> we'll help. For, we'll forgive that. I can't dear, help but admire what's <laughs> happened in this part of town. Yeah, for our, for our listeners around the country, we, we our studio is uh, broadcast here from the University of Pennsylvania's campus here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Tim, you were going to. Well, I was up. just going to comment that. When you talk about the densification and the shift into cities, one of the things that we talk a lot about, Byron, is the increased infrastructure spending that's likely going to come out of that and how that can also contribute to a, a longer overall cycle. Yeah, we're going to get into I'm just going to make one sort of ad- anecdotal comment because of basically what you were just uh, describing. We have a, a very popular uh, high-profile developer here in Philadelphia who uh, has been uh, working on a major project at a major intersection here in the city. And he's proposed, his plan has been for like second and third story retail. And the community groups and the planners are, well, how can you have retail in the second and third story? And, you know, and, I mean, he's always been ahead of his time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's clearly going to, you know, it, that's what's coming. That's the preference, the changing preference. It's already here. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York's always had, you know, a very dense city and I'm sure many other cities, uh, Chicago as well. Uh, but I think I think the really exciting thing you st- started to touch on is the, the, as you put it, the elongation of the cycle. So for many of us uh, who have lived through, uh, you know, hopefully most of our listeners is not as uh, old, old as I am, but I've now lived through 40 some odd decades as an adult, uh, 40, decades, 40 years, four decades of cycles. Um, and they all come to an end. And yes. they usually come to an end after, you know, somewhere from six to eight or nine or certainly 10 years. This one's been going on since uh, when? How would you date this cycle? Uh, probably back to the end of 2009. Yep. Right. So yeah. we're coming up to, uh, you know, ten years. Eight, ten years. yeah, eight, nine, 10 years. And it doesn't seem to be an end in sight. People get nervous. What, what, what do you think? What's driving this? So I'll offer my perspective, and then Tim can jump in. I think that we were, the, the 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 real estate community, because of the last global financial crisis, had a long way out of the ditch. And it there was capital coming in, buying what could be bought very inexpensively to begin writing it up. But at the same time, there was not a lot of new development. And the banks and financial institutions really squeezed credit available to the industry. So part of the elongation is because we had to go up the curve to then begin replacing what needed to be built just to meet demand. So we're behind. We're behind in demand in most product types. Yeah. So uh, if you look, if one looks back to what what for, for me was the first major uh, you know, recession was after the Tax Reform Act, nineteen eighty seven, eighty six. Um, we had a, a period of time where the where U.S. government, Congress had major, major advantages for real estate. So, uh, and this is something I was thinking of when you were talking earlier, is that developers will build whenever they can finance it. It has nothing to do with demand. If they can get the money, they'll build it. You know, they're getting development fees. Not every developer, and please, I'm apologizing to some of my <laughs> clients and friends who say that's that's outrageous. But, but nevertheless, I think across the board, that's often true and often said. And... Uh, so I think that the tax advantages to developing real estate were so extraordinary in the in the late seventies and early and early eighties. Um, created overbuilding, created <laughs> enormous overbuilding. Not not true this cycle. Exactly. Right. That's where. Yeah. So that, this is the opposite of that. Yeah, we have the pent up demand. Is that? And, and are you seeing that in every sector? Well, it's pent up demand for different products in different markets in different sectors. Right. So the the I mean I don't think we can minimize the changing demand preferences that are driving the new opportunities. 
Is that, is that no, fair, Tim? Yeah, I would agree. I think, <clears throat> I mean, you commented a lot on uh, supply, the fact that, that leverage levels are, are, are more controlled this cycle, that people are being uh, more smarter, disciplined. more disciplined. Uh, but the other thing you have is you still have, you know, relatively strong economic growth. And so as we continue to see that and fundamentals keep doing well, you know, that is going to enable us to kind of continue to have an elongated cycle. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk in a, in a moment about just how elongated this might be. I, I, at least I'm hoping I can I can get some, some thoughts on that. But I just want to welcome any uh, listeners who have tuned in since our, our, our halfway break for uh, the, the last quarter of our show. You're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Bob Lane. We're talking with Tim Bodner and Byron Carlock, both from the global accounting and consulting firm PwC. Um, and if you want to join us, you have only a few more minutes to do that. Uh, we're at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. If you're listening on Friday, August third, we're live in the studio for your your questions or your your comments. Um, <clears throat> so um, so we've measured this cycle uh, more or less. I mean, it's not not exact, um, but um, and we don't see the end in sight. Um, it's got to be there, right? Well, the, every, no. you know, I think we have to dis- dissect two phenomena. One is the structural elements of this cycle and then the cyclical elements that we can't escape. And so real estate is always a cyclical industry. There are ups and downs. There will come a correction. But I don't think the next big downturn is going to be real estate's fault. So I'm going to go out on I'm going to go out on a limb with that one. I think the next correction will be something that interrupts demand or interrupts capital. Hmm. But the industry's supply-demand characteristics right now are attractive enough that I think we can withstand uh, a minor correction. But there are several things to watch. Uh, you know, int- but before you get to what, watch, just for our listeners, um, when, when, when Byron says that it's not going to be real estate's fault, I think what you mean is that going back to the Tax Reform Act in the 80s, it was uh, overbuilt. overbuilt real estate is what really caused a, a massive uh, uh, recession or mm-hmm. correction. Um, I, we then had, I guess, the, the, uh, the Internet boom and bust in the, you know, around 2000, 2001, which was different. But then this last terrible great recession. was a mortgage was, crisis. was a mortgage crisis. Right. Was the, you know, so, so that's what uh, we mean by real estate's fault. But this one is whose fault? Well, I, <laughs> You're not going to blame anybody. We, we could probably, you know, open a bottle of wine and name 15 things it could be, right? Yeah, I, I but, know some but people. It, it could be a major tech adjustment. It could be a geopolitical issue. Um, it could be um, something, you know, globally unsettling that interrupts demand or capital flows. But I think uh, the industry is in better shape this cycle than it's been in past peaks, if you will, you know, nine or ten years into a recovery. Would you? I agree. Yeah. So, so, um, so you mentioned a few possible causes, and we, we've been talking about geopolitical. So, I mean, the world is so volatile now uh, that you know anything can happen, and that's always been been true, I guess. So, there's not much that investors, uh, you know, or, or or developers, people in, the, in listening to our show, can really do about that. Um, technology mm-hmm. is another which you mentioned, and uh, you know, especially, and of course, it's just really a, a tip when we of an iceberg when we see uh, you know the news is always just, you know about Apple and the trillion dollar mark. Um, it just makes us think in the questions that are on the radio and in the commentary, people are news shows are saying, has tech gotten too powerful? Is it in a few you know, major companies like Amazon and Alphabet and Apple and 
you know, on and on and on. Um, and, and foreign, co- you know, and Alibaba and, and Beidou and, and, and other, other companies around the world, uh, telecommunications, et cetera. Um, do you really think that that's a, a concern? Are they too powerful? Are they too, or do we have too many eggs in those few baskets for, for our economy? I know it's not really your areas of special special. We're talking we're talking about it a lot. We, yeah. we we are. I <clears throat> I certainly think what we're what we're seeing is technology businesses generally uh, becoming a much greater part of industry overall, and that includes w- w- with respect to real estate. So, I think if you look at the amount of capital that technology is allocating, even just to real estate, it's quite significant. So I don't think we would say that it's. Um, becoming too powerful, but it's definitely going to be a greater, greater part of our lives moving forward. And it's certainly driving change. I'll I'll tell you, in the firm, we've launched a new platform business called Workforce of the Future that forces companies to take their real estate workforce environment and marry it with their technology and their employee connectedness, if you will, and their people strategy. So that triangle for Workforce of the Future really makes you realize that technology is embedded not only in the way we react with our people and employees, but the way we use space. And that's having profound implications on the real estate industry as we go through this you know, structural remaking of the various product types. Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's funny because I think that connects with something I heard yesterday. I was listening to, to I was in my car a lot yesterday. I was listening to the radio about you know this, which I've alluded to a couple of times in the show, the uh, Apple trillion dollar mm-hmm. capitalization. And one of the comments that some uh, I was listening to, I think it may even have been on the business radio one thirty two series XM. <laughs> I don't remember, but. Um, was that Apple employs, I'm forgetting the numbers, but order of magnitude, Apple employs less than 200,000 employees, uh, like 150, say. GM, at its uh, height, was capitalized and adjusted dollars and comparable dollars at something like a fifth of the value, a couple hundred million, mere couple hundred million dollars. You guys could correct my numbers, but order of magnitude, that was my takeaway. And they employed... Five hundred thousand. Right. I mean, again, I may have zeros off, but but um, many many times. So so the impact on the economy, the the the, the giving back to you know, employment and jobs and everything of the tech industry is far less, uh, and the, and the average wages as well uh, are were, 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 were lower. So that you know, am I right? Did I understand that correctly? And what's well, it's, the it's another example of the structural change yeah. in the way we do business, right? right? Yeah. And not only the way we do business, the way we use real estate. I mean, you can list a whole number of technology disruptors that are changing the way we use real estate. Technology that allows us to be mobile and work away from a traditional office. Mm-hmm. Driverless cars that are going to reduce the amount and need for parking garages, the way e-commerce relates to our daily retail offerings and needs, tighter density for residential in smaller units. So all of these changes are changing the way we use four walls around us, and technology is the big driver there. And it's going to take maybe fewer people to run certain companies because we'll do it more efficiently, but it's also taking different kinds of real estate to support those companies, and that's giving growth to this industry. Well, it's also causing <clears throat> real estate to be viewed as a service. 
as opposed to what it has historically. But in, even if you just look at our our firm, you know, w- the way we execute our work and the amount of uh, capital that's being invested in kind of tech enabling our business is something that we focus on significantly. To- yeah, and, and no one has an office anymore. No. I know I, uh, law yeah. firms are now, which is uh, one of the the last bastions of, uh, you know, are now going to just common offices. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mahogany's yeah. out, white's in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say open floor plans <laughs> in law firms yet, and I doubt that PwC, at least for the for the the, the you know the professionals as opposed to the we staff. have we have closable doors for private meetings, but yeah. no one has a closed door office anymore. Oh, really? And that's global. That is. Oh, that's that's extraordinary, yeah. um, and I think that that is impacting and, and informing how real estate's developed. The use of space, uh, less space is necessary, and yet we're fully employed, at least here in the United States. I mean, t- not a hundred percent. It's never a hundred percent, but it's uh, unemployment is less than it's like four percent, less well, than four. You know, three point nine percent today. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and that's considered full employment because yep. there's always people moving in and out. Now, people argue that. Um, you know, there are less people looking. There are some people gave up looking for jobs. So I think it's adjusted for that, isn't it? Not entirely. It can yeah. be. It can be deceiving. But you know, unemployment is quite low, and we're we're doing more with less, yeah. uh, but still keeping people employed. And the you know the robotic argument is one to watch for. You know, are we are we are we really willing to suffer through the retraining necessary to go the next level of our economic advancement? It's going to be a cost socially and educationally, but could employ plenty of people in doing so, right? Yeah, there'll be new jobs. That's right, there'll and new ty- and new types of jobs. And new types of jobs. That's what I meant. Uh, new, and 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 certainly the generations coming up will hopefully be adjusting to that as they come. And they're already more technological than we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help us uh, baby boomers no. who uh, need to need to readjust. But you know. I think maybe maybe they'll have uh, for the, for the last segment of our show. I really do want to think about uh, you know whether there is a predictable range for when this cycle will end, and and, and maybe even more importantly, because I don't you know that's really anybody's guess. I guess more informed guesses. But what do you think will be the result of the next downturn? Will it be precipitous? Um, will it be that soft landing? Uh, what 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 do you think? Well, I I certainly think that. Um to Byron's earlier point, uh, that it's not going to the next downturn is not going to be real estate's fault. So if real estate has, um, you know, a correction, it's going to be because of geopolitical or regulatory or something of the, of that nature. Uh, but I think because real estate's been much more disciplined this cycle compared to the past, that it won't be as hard a landing as we saw last time. And certain sectors are going to continue to do well and maybe not experiencing that much of a correction off. If, if you go to Byron's earlier point around uh, what we're seeing in industrial because of the proliferation of e-commerce, that's one sector where you might continue, you know, see some stability even in a, even in a correction. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I, I would add to your area in transactions, I think we're seeing another structural change in the way real estate is being traded, and that is an increase in M&A activity. And we, you know, I think in in Tim's report this quarter, he highlighted six major M and A transactions that are different than just buying properties or portfolios of properties. They're merging companies and taking public companies private. And so, the transaction volume side of our business, I think, is also going to remain reasonably robust unless interest costs really 
escalate faster than we're expecting. Agreed. And the other thing we haven't talked about at all, we've been focused on the property sectors, but if you look at the services businesses that yep. touch real estate, they continue to be incredibly active uh, on the transaction front with uh, Cushman and Wakefield just you know, going through their IPO last week. Uh, Jones Lang LaSalle recently announced an acquisition. Alvison Young announced an acquisition. So the services business, in addition to what we've been talking about on the property side and the public company side, is another area where we expect to see a lot of transaction activity. Yeah. Well, well the, but the ramifications of some of those transactions in the service area is, is that there's a lot of deals to be done, but the result may be the consolidation um, and you know, economics of scale and, 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 and fewer People and you know jobs. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, or, or, or redeployed, redeployed right. into That's other areas. I think you're seeing the service companies do more for their clients. Yeah, you're seeing corporate real estate need more attention and handholding as they go through transformation. So I think that piece is is um, still reason. I'm reasonably optimistic there. Another, I've got. There's one other big area of optimism. I know we're running out of time, but I think that. Opportunity zones, opportunity funds, and infrastructure are probably one of the biggest things to potentially extend this cycle longer than we've seen a cycle go before. And that is the very important legislative incentive to develop and redevelop blighted areas. And opportunity zones and opportunity funds could be a whole other show to talk about what that can do to change the nature of our cities as the governors of all 50 states got their particular opportunity zones approved. I think that's a uh, great note to uh, end our show on, giving some uh, opportunities and thoughts for our listeners to uh, look into, and I think that's a great idea for another show. So I'm going to help have you guys both back on. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You've been listening to the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Channel 132. Have a great week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.